step away from the mic soon. All right, do, uh, do you want to do like an intro, like an introduction, like a like a setup? Welcome to your Buzz Rant and Rave podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Raff. Tonight's episode, we will be discussing season one of The Wire with a pop culture panel featuring Dan Suter and Amy Watts. Tonight's episode, Watching the Detectives, is brought to you by Irish Whiskey. The only drink appropriate for putting together IKEA furniture. (laughs) That's in my notes, actually. I I think I have in my notes, I would watch Drunk McNulty put together IKEA furniture for like an hour a week. If that was just a show, I would watch it. Uh, If there's one thing The Wire does well, it, it celebrates drinking. So tonight I'm well not drinking Irish whiskey because I don't have any, but I am drinking. What? <laughs> I am drinking Scotch uh, Spayburn Ten, a single malt, out of a Bushmills glass. And now, even though that's Protestant whiskey, I will deem that acceptable. What does it matter I, to you? I have I have a Macallan Twelve downstairs, but that, I I think I'm sticking with my Nalgene full of tap water. Athens finest tap water here. <laughs> Unacceptable. I have I have six pages worth of notes, and I need to be able to read the Times New Roman twelve font. So, oh, I have handwritten notes that I wrote on the subway coming home, and how quaint! I I don't know if I'll be able to read them, even if I am completely one hundred percent, one hundred twenty percent sober. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's like like proof. I don't think it works that way. Okay. No, one hundred twenty percent sober is um kind of where you and I will be mentally if, if the paths will be that, <laughs> that, that I, so. uh, During our first podcast, our, the vast marathon unfocused one that edited down into something almost listenable, yeah. <laughs> I was shocked and appalled that the two of you have never seen The Wire, that you spend a lot of time watching TV, have never seen the best show of the 21st century so far. Well, 12 years. Eleven years <laughs> in. Hey, hey, the scoreboard top tops of the top. I'm glad that you guys are were willing to sit through uh, a few episodes, and you know now that we're well, you guys are five episodes in at this point. We're five. We're a handful of episodes, five hours under the wire. Well, I feel you... the due credit must be given to Marcia Nagorski for kind of getting the ball rolling on Twitter, uh, and then over on on the blog in terms of. Making it yes. a, more of a group effort, even. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing this episode five at this point so that we coincide with where the uh, viewing party is over at a list of things thrown five minutes ago. Our friends over there at throwingthings.blogspot.com. It's, it's basically a much more enjoyable version of those read the Bible in a year book clubs. Oh, oh this I, is I much so. more fun. I think it's read the take Bible like... in a year book club. That's called Sunday school. <laughs> Hey, it's a whole. Although I gotta say, Simcha Torah is probably a lot more fun when you get to the end of uh, all five books of the uh, the Torah than uh, coming to the end of all five seasons <laughs> of The Wire. I think at the end of that, don't you be? Well, do we do we get a, a bar mitzvah for finishing The Wire? Do, do we get like a wire mitzvah, Brody mitzvah? Uh, if you finish all five seasons, I think we get to feel uh, morally superior to the people who haven't finished The Wire yet. Yes. That is the case. I think that's our reward. 
And there's really a whole continuum of people who feel smug for having watched The Wire. Like the people who watched it when it was first on HBO yeah. have the feeling of they discovered this when it was just new. Those of us who've come to it later through Netflix and well, I'm, other I'm means. Not, I'm just going to go out here. I I get I get annoyed when I've known about something for a long time, and then somebody comes to me and is like, man, have you seen this thing? Have you seen this Better Off Ted? And I was like, yes, I've seen Better Off Ted. Or like, my friends all just got into Party Down, and I was like, excuse me, I was I was watching that when it was first run on Stars." Oh, no, see, I'm all, welcome to the party, man, you know, it's, but it's I all get, good. I'm not saying it's a healthy reaction, it's just my reaction of, you think I wasn't there, but yeah, well, I, the, the thing about The Wire is that no one was there when it was on, originally. Yeah. It, you know, it's like the Woodstock of television, like, you know, what, you know, they say however many people were at Woodstock, like, there's, like, half a million people were there, and, like, 10 million people have claimed to have been there, or something like that. So it's, I feel it's like it's sort of that way. But to be honest, I'm just really glad I get to experience it in the Twitter age where I can now go on and talk to people about it and hopefully not get spoiled. But a lot of stuff has been spoiled for me just by living in a culturally literate circle. Yeah, well, just, being, just being online, you'll, you'll hear about things that will, won't, won't make any sense when you haven't seen it. But then once you start to, to get into it, well, Omar coming. Oh, yeah. Oh, Omar. Oh, you yeah, will, I've heard of him. You have to be, I think it, you have to be really careful, especially like with this and Game of Thrones, the two places I've noticed it, where you have to, like, even just where I'm like, I need a character name, and or I'm, or I'm like on IMDb, and I'm looking for the character name, and you'll see the episode count they were in. And you're like, well, something happens to that character. <laughs> yeah. or, or, like, you, or you could just go on Wikipedia, and you find out, like the spoiler of the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just trying to figure out who the character is or, or just looking up anything about the show. Yeah. See, and I've been kind of, I've been very sparing for that reason. Like pretty much the only thing I've been allowing myself to read are the reaction posts at um, a list of things thrown five minutes ago and Alan Seppenwall's newbies wire watching. I don't even flip over to the veterans because I'm not. Dude. Oh, do not flip over to the veterans, but if you're starting to watch The Wire, the best thing to do is to watch an episode and then read Alan Seppenwall's review of it, the I, newbie's version. I haven't done that simply because I I watched two episodes last night, and I, I had actually gotten be- behind a list of things. I, I was two episodes behind. I watched two episodes last night and then two today um, because I knew at some point I was just going to have to marathon them. On the but, other hand, though, one of the best things to do is to marathon it. That It's a show that's really tough to watch in our segments of the time. Well, I actually – yeah, well, it's hard to put down. It's not hard to watch it an hour at a time. It's just hard to put down. Well, or what I wonder is, like you say, how – when you were watching it for the – these people who did watch it on HBO, how did you wait until the next week? You yeah. Know? I mean, the worst thing about when I watched the first two seasons was – watching on Netflix and getting through a disc or disc, two discs at a time and, and then having like to wait days. for the next disc to come in the mail. Yeah. Which is I, why for seasons three and four, I just had to go out and buy them. So I didn't have to deal with that. And then you, and then you watch season five live, right? I watched season five right when it came out on DVD. Okay. okay. I'm, I was watching season four when season five was on TV and I didn't have HBO at the time. 
I actually, I actually, I, I, t- I think I wrote this like three separate places in my notes, but I actually sort of, David Simon, I believe this was his for other than the prequel movie to the wire, not a prequel, but the, the, the thing that inspired him to make the wire basically was when he made the, um, the corner. And there's a lot of the same actors in similar roles, I guess. I, I haven't checked it out, but that's well, there, what I've there's, heard. There's a lot of overlap between his two books and the series that were made from those two books. Uh, yeah. David Simon, as you know, is the creator of The Wire, the, the showrunner of the show, along with Ed Burns, was yeah. the other main uh, co-writer. The two of them collaborated on two books about life in Baltimore in the 90s, Homicide, yeah, which chronicled it's made into homicide life in the streets, the which homicide... I watched religiously when it was on. Right. Uh, Ed Burns was a homicide detective on the Baltimore Police Department and was the main advisor to that that book, which was, as we know, adapted by Barry Levinson into Homicide Life on the Streets, featuring some really solid uh, performances, including the origin of uh, Detective, Detective John Munch, Munch yeah. who went on to exist in. Law and Order, <laughs> The Simpsons, Arrested Development, Arrested X Files. Development. Yep, he he he's the main linchpin in the Tommy Westfall multiverse. Uh, Simon and Burns went on to write The Corner, uh, a follow-up to Homicide, about life on an inner city corner, one of the worst street uh, worst street corners in West Baltimore, where you know, drug dealers and junkies and gangbangers. Hoppers, all this, and they really got. They spent uh, a lot of time out there on the corner, met these people, yeah. Wrote a great book, and uh, both of the two of these books are really the source material for the show. They provide so much of the uh, the background for it, and uh, the first, the cold open of episode one, the story of Snot Boogie, yeah. comes directly from Homicide, the book. Um, the other, the other one thing I was going to say about that is, um, it was, it was hearkening back to homicide life on the streets is that I feel like the wire, the cinematography on the wire, while there are some signs of a lot of creativity there, a lot of it is kind of straight out of the network procedural playbook. Um, and it's, it looks very much like a late nineties, early to mostly late nineties to me. It actually looks a little dated. The, a lot of the color palette and the, um, the cinema, the cinematography of it, not just the the outfits and the look, but the the cinematography. And um, I actually really like the pre credit vignettes and kind of staging them away before the uh, that opening sequence, which looks really hilariously dated. Um, well, there a couple of things from that. One, the cold opens of the show are generally great. I, they, I I think I have like four of the five episodes I've wrote. Like I love this cold open. I love this cold open. The one of the uh, that I brought up before the of the pilot, the snot, the story of Snot Boogie, uh, really encapsulates the point of the show. Why'd you even let him in the game? What? Miss Snot Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. Well, that that is the pull quote from that episode. If you've noticed at the end of the credits, there's a key quote from the episode that sums it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe uh, the first episode was uh, "Got to man, this is America, ain't it?" So, do we want to just like do we want to do this episode by episode and like jump in? Like, what do you think about this? Well, I, I think we should go in and uh, we can do that, but also go in a little overall. And there's yeah. one question I want to 
uh, that you kind of brought up that I'd like to discuss right now is, do you feel that the show is dated? It's 10 years old at this point. I What I would say is that it's of a time and place. Dated makes it seem like it's your uncle whose hair is going back, but he's still trying to do the worm at a at a wedding. Like, time, of a time and place. Like, I think it really... Com- I mean, let, let's. I, I think in my first comment I posted on the blog, I said, like, you know, inner city Baltimore is is really foreign to me. Like, it, it's as foreign as you know anything in like Star Wars is. So, if if I just have, I just have to accept that this is the world he's showing me, and I can see elements of a world I once knew because I would have. If we're going to accept that this is taking place when the series actually started in two thousand and two. I would have been like 13 and I, I pretty much knew what the world looked like around me. And so that's pretty accurate. I think that was, that was actually one of the questions in my notes, young Daniel, how old were you when the show was on TV in the first I would place? Have been, I would have been 13. Uh, that would have put me in eighth grade. So I was much, so too, you could have been a hopper. You were uh, I, really the same age as Wallace and Pluto. No, and Bodhi. I, was, I was younger than uh, uh, Bodie, Bodie or Brody. It's Bodie, right? Bodhi. It's Bodhi. I actually have in my notes somewhere, I think it says, I hope his full name is Bodacious. But that's when you find <laughs> out his name is Preston. His name is Preston, of course. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really white name. But uh, I, I, they were, I think they say that Bodhi is 16, and I would have been like 13. I would have been a fair bit younger. Yeah, you would have been one of the uh, the guys sitting on the corner calling out five zero five zero. Yeah, well, th- now those kids look like they were t- like I'm kind of I'm, I'm right around there. Like, and I I can see, and I think the way they use the children, and that's I I have to assume that that's going to be one of the journeys the show takes us on is that this is what it's like growing up and not having options and being kind of enslaved to this life from the get go. Well, I I know enough about. I'm not going to spoil where, where any of this goes, but yes, children say, I, I is a key from, theme of the show. Awareness kind of way know that yes, the the issue of what the kids are doing in this is going to be addressed. Well, yeah. I, I oh, mean, do you do you guys having seen Friday Night Lights seasons four and five? Do you feel any uh, odd to see uh, uh, what's Wallace. it? What's, Wallace, Wallace, yeah, the, the kid who plays Wallace, who goes on to play Hattie's, uh, Hattie's boyfriend. And I was going to say, I recognize him because I haven't quite got through all the way through Friday uh, Night Lights uh, yet. Uh, um, and so to me, he's he's the kid on par- he's the guy on Parenthood, and it's just killing me. Well, I I he's actually baby I think he, Michael Michael B. Jordan is his name, and uh, I actually I think he did he he's a really good enough actor that. I see a little bit of uh, I forget the quarterback's name from uh, Friday Night Lights. Vince, Vince. I, I see a little bit of Vince's Vince in him in that they're sort of poor ghetto upbringing. They did have that kind of not great storyline with Vince about him getting pulled back into the hood life, and I could see a little bit of that like hesitance. But I actually think his character Wallace here is a lot more innocent than Vince's. Vince oh, definitely, has seen, Vince has seen some shit, and I think. Uh, I think um, I, I think they're I see them as different characters, which is something I can't always do with Cedric Daniels, um, with uh, with Lance Reddick is his real name because I see him as Broyles on on Fringe. <laughs> and I just started watching Fringe, and like I mean, when I say just started watching, he looks I'm exactly like the first he doesn't three episodes. He hasn't aged a day. Well, and that's the thing is, I'm watching him on the wire, and I'm thinking, ooh, I want to watch more of this gentleman. I should watch more Fringe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's very, um, he's he, he's very good though. If I can jump in, I want to say that you know I watched episode one and episode two because you start at the beginning, right? 
Yes. And, and, and I liked both of them. I mean, I really liked from episode two that sort of conversation about, you know, why can't you sell it and walk away? And, yeah. and that sort of, I think that was the pull quote for that episode. Um, yeah. But where this show hooked me was in episode three when Omar blew away the kid's knee with the shotgun. And why that hooked me is because I was like, okay, we are playing for real stakes in a real environment where there are consequences and where things happen that you don't expect. You know, well, I, it's I mean, only it's only the second action set piece of the entire series. I mean, if this was a network show, we would have already had four shootouts. Well, it's not just that. It's also that on the network show, you know, he would have threatened him for a long time with the shotgun. He would have danced around. He would have fired a warning shot into the ceiling. And then yeah. he would have only hit the kid by accident. Right. Yeah. Or there would have been swift and immediate retribution. Well, because because every other than him sh- shooting that kid's knee out, everything about Omar says "love me, love me." The audience is supposed to love me. But, then, but and, and they it do. Really was sort of. I mean, I did actually say out loud to my television, "Holy shit!" Because yeah. it just surprised <laughs> me that much that the show was willing to go that far. And I thought, okay, okay, you're gonna you're gonna play like that show. I'm in. I, I I think I was hooked a little earlier. I think I I I sort of got pulled in because I I I could see a little bit of the string pulling, or I thought I could, um, with some of the stuff in episode two. Like I liked episode one. Episode one is great, but it's a lot of walking around and setting stuff up. Um, I what sold me was that that briefing scene in number two where Kima and uh, Daniels are talking to the to the ragtag group of misfit cops and they keep getting interrupted and it was so like we've seen that scene a million times the the setting up of the new task force you know and we've seen that and normally it's pomp hey! and circumstance you guys from purchasing yeah exactly and and they just they undercut it so perfectly it was just so it was like the anticlimax like they let all the air out of the balloon and it was really really good well, I, when I, wa- I rewatched that the the other day, and I listened to the uh, commentary on the DVD with uh, yeah. the director Clark Johnson, who goes on to have a a part on on camera in season five. By the way, Clark Johnson, yes, who was on Homicide. But, uh, I'm talking about how they used that scene to really try to. You knew it was an exposition scene. There was a lot of pipeline going on there. I did see a lot of that, and, and I think. And they really took that and used the comic relief to draw the focus away from the fact that this is exposition. This is – we're telling you here what's going on. We're laying it out. We know we have to do I, this. You know what? I actually have a bone to pick with the Wire hardcores is that they always tell me how brilliant and this show is amazing. And it is. I really love what I've seen. But there are a lot of concessions to the audience. This show is not as hard to get into as people think. That chess scene with – which is basically the street life equivalent of the briefing scene, the one where um, D'Angelo is teaching Wallace and Bodie because who are playing checkers with the chess set, which is a really nice touch because I've done that before. Yo, yo, see look, y'all yo. can't be playing no checkers on no oh, chessboard, right. yo. All right, all right, all right, man. Now look, checkers. It's simple. It's simple. See this? This the kingpin. All right, and he the man. You get the other dude's king, you got the game. And he's trying to get your king too, so you got protected. Now the king, he move one space, any direction he damn choose, because he's the king. 
Like this, 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 all right? But he ain't got no hustle. But the rest of these motherfuckers on the team, they got his back. And they run so deep, he really ain't got to do shit. I like your uncle. Yeah, like my uncle. You see this? It's the queen. She's smart, she's fierce. She move any way she want, as far as she want. And she is the go-get-shit-done piece. Remind me of Stringer. <laughs> and this over here is the castle. It's like the stash. You move like this, and like this. Dog, stash don't move, man. Come on, yo, think. How many times we moved the stash house this week? Right? And every time we move the stash, we gotta move a little muscle with it, right? To protect it. True. True. We right. All right. What about them little bald-headed bitches right there? All right, these right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. They move like this, one space forward only, except when they fight. And it's like, like this. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king, stay the king, all right? Everything stay who he is, except for the pawns. Now, for Pawn, made all the way down to the other dude's side, you get to be queen. And like I said, the queen ain't no bitch. She got all the moves. All right, so if I make it to the other end, I win. If you catch the other dude's king and trap it, then you win. All right, but if I make it to the end, I'm top dog. Nah, yo, it ain't like that. Look. Pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. That scene was like, okay, they're giving everyone a chance. For the people who are a little slower on the uptake, now you're getting a chance to put all the pieces together and see who's where, and you're having a character actually explain it to you. So, yes, the show has... Yeah, it's not. And I think there was a little bit of that in episode four, if I can skip ahead to that, where Landsman, and I want to talk about this scene in more detail later, but when Landsman goes in and is talking about McNulty's, you know, kind of singing McNulty's praises, I was like, oh, so you're telling me this because you don't need to take the time to show it to me. I, I have a point about that in two seconds, but I agree. And I think the show. The show has gotten – because the show is so great, and I think the show is – I've seen – we've seen about a little less than 10% of the show. We're one episode short of 10% of the show. But I, I think it's earned its reputation as great, but it's not quite as rarefied as a lot of people seem to portray it as. Like, yes, it still does a lot of TV series-y things, that, like having to have a scene that explains everything to you. So it's good. Oh, I, I, I hold off on that judgment until you get further into it. I mean, it, it's, because there, it's, there are a few things that it does that are very different. That yes, the first few episodes there is a little bit of exposition. There and, is are things, that, but when we get to season two, they replace half the cast. Oh, the okay. world is completely different. Okay, and uh, it really goes in a way that it tells a story per season in a way that a lot of shows are unwilling to do. And I'm actually going to go back to what. Uh, what Amy said earlier about the show not tell. And I, uh, I absolutely agree. I actually wrote down, Hey, we're seeing a lot of McNulty 
we haven't seen him do anything other than walk around and talk to people. We haven't seen him actually be a police. You know, I, I like how they keep saying police. In, until epi- in episode four. Well, episode four. You really cases, see, uh, you when, see when, that. When he, in the, it's that same episode that Amy was just talking about with Landsman. You have that where Landsman goes, hey, he's great. And that's what makes him great. And that's when I went, okay, Wire, show me. And I actually sort of was thinking that. And then later in that episode, we see Bunk and McNulty, who just, that scene is so amazing. Oh, fuck. Motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And that's really the scene that sold it for me. I was I was in I bought into the show with the cold open of the first episode when the the informant there told McNulty, "You got to let him play, man. This is America." Yeah. That's well. There's an obvious reason that was the cold open of the entire series. It explains yes. the show as a whole. That I was hooked in at that point. It sold me. Then you get Chicken McNuggets in episode two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have. I actually wrote down about that. One of my key quotes is, "Hey, Mister Nugget, you the bomb." Like, you, yeah. know, you, you I, have that. You have. Um, you can't call the war on drugs. You're an effective deterrent on the war on drugs when we are on the street. Fucking motherfuckers up, wreck. Indeed. Boom. Fuck the paperwork. Collect body. Split heads. Split them wide. The Western District way. All right. You heroic motherfuckers, kill me. Fighting the war on drugs. One brutality case at a time. Girl, you can't even call this shit a war. Why not? Wars end. Girl. And then season uh, episode four is is the, but episode four Old uh, cases, yeah. is the one that just sold me on the show. You have a, yeah. a few things. One, it, the cold open where they're trying to get the desk in or out of the detail office. Half I, of the half the. That. Detail is going in one direction. The other half is going the other direction. They're all working against each other. And I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really good sort of <laughs> visual metaphor for everything. Maybe I wrote down party party symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I I actually wrote down how many cops does it take to move a desk? What I was hoping for the whole time, and maybe you can hop in on this, Amy. I was hoping that Lester Freeman would like walk off and screw off one of the legs and walk away and be like, "That's how you do it." Uh, who are you feeling? Well, what obvious? What, what of the who of the secondary and tertiary characters are you really liking? Well, Freeman, Landsman, Bubbles. See, Landsman, I can give or take. I love Bubbles oh, and Freeman. No, no, no. See, and I want to talk about a scene with Landsman later, but we'll get to that. Um, the the other. If I want to say something about the couch again, real quick. Have either of you guys read any of Douglas Adams' Dirk Gently books? No, I've read uh, no. Hitchhikers, but never okay. the Holistic Detective Agency. Remember, well, there's two Dirk Gently books. Um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. 
Yeah. And I don't remember in which one of those it happens, but in one of those, um, Dirk gently has a couch. Uh, on the, the stairs to get up to his flat have a twist in them, and the couch got stuck. <laughs> and he left they it. get it up, they can't get it down, and he's, like, built a computer model that's trying to, that keeps turning the couch, trying to figure out how to get it either up or down. <laughs> it's like this recurring thing through the book, and so I just, I was really hoping the desk would be stuck in the doorway forever, and it would be like a little Dirk Gently homage there. <laughs> speaking of, speaking of couches, that couch out there in the middle of the pit, the Love pit the is that, pit. Front. I said, I, I, I have in my notes in episode two, the detail, um, that couch has more development than most network TV characters. Like, <laughs> well, I was like, best supporting couch, best supporting, best supporting appliance. You know? yeah. and but, one of the one of the things they do talk about on the uh, some of the commentaries is how that couch just sat out there forever and ever, and just was disgusting and nasty, and really lived a good life. <laughs> in in its second life or third life as a prop on the wire, it lived. Yeah, I hope it got fumigated every now and then for the actor's sake. Well, they shot this on location, right? This was yes. shot on location. Yes. So this did it just like, stay out there for like five years or something? It pretty much did stay out there for a long time. Uh, that that scene, the the pit, the low rises, was actually a retirement home, I believe. Really, yeah, I can see yeah. that. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much all of the the locations that were supposed to be the projects, the high rises, the, t- the towers, homes. the pit. We're all had all moved on to some other form of occupancy at that point. Yeah, I actually, I actually want to say something about the towers. Um, I thought that that scene in is that's the second episode, right, um, or third? Uh, that where uh, Herc, Prez, and Carver are yeah decide to go into the towers to do some uh, surveillance. Yes, some yeah. field work. Um, check true. my notes. Yeah, yeah, that Yes, that um, is episode 2. Yeah, okay, I found it in my notes. It's under the detail. Um, I'm deleting my notes as we go so I don't repeat anything. <laughs> but um but yeah, that that set, that set piece I really like because like in in any other network TV show or even cable nowadays, that would just be a, a, a run and gun shootout, but in the wire it's just they're throwing bottles and a couple of pot shots and it's just more the slow burn of that scene really worked for me and the vertical element of it. You don't get to see a lot of vertical action scenes. It is, a, it is a terrifying scene. You really see that from their perspective. Yeah. And things, like, it's random. It's coming down from above. It's And it starts slowly. Bottles, like, bottles, you, and then boom! A TV. A TV. And, Absolutely. And then they get shot, and they're on the radio calling out the Signal 13s. Yeah, I and, and I and, and I saw in the in the pull list you had the dressing down that uh, Daniels. I almost called them broils. That Daniels gives uh, Herc and Carver and Prez, and that to me was, I uh, the big question is, and we should probably say that we're going to spoil stuff that happens in these five episodes. But when they when I don't know, are we supposed to believe that Daniels is dirty or not? What are we supposed to believe? At this at at this point, it's an open question. I was going to say at this point, I think we're just supposed to be questioning. That, and that's I, and that's one of the things that actually takes a very long time to pay off. A very long time to pay off. And, but but that's the thing, like, Daniels. You see him as he is in these episodes, in these five episodes. Well, we he is him. he is like the the Mac Daddy of police. He is on top of things. He he's there. 
like he chews out her car from Prez. Like you would not want to be on the receiving end of that. And yet at the same time that he's doing that, He's coaching them through the IID investigation they're going to have to go through. Exactly. But you can also – you can see that a couple of ways. Like you can see that as, you know, he wants this investigation to work. So he's trying not to have, you know, his investigations like two or three weeks old and he doesn't want them to, you know, go up in flames already. You know, we've seen scenes where he's not interacting with the team, where he's interacting with the police hierarchy. And in that way – it's always looked like he's on the up and up and that he's just like, I need more men. I need better men, you know? Well, that's or- that's really what the show is. The show is about institutions. It's about chain of command. And it's about yeah. the way that shit or piss rolls downhill. Yeah. And speaking of rolling downhill, I think the, I, I, the McNulty, I really love this character. I really, his his total bemusement at his own uh, fuck uppery. His total just like he like when he's gets out of the car to yell at the two people who are beating on some Toyota or something. And he's like, hey, I'm a police stop. And he's like falling down. And he finally just like he falls down in the mud and he drops his badge and he picks it up and looks at it and just like smiles and laughs and like shakes his head. Like, you know, that I love that. He just is so kind of Jimmy McNulty is one of the all time best drunks on television. (laughs) It, and it gets better from here. It this is just the beginning, but I don't and I don't want to oversell it. But Jimmy McNulty is he ta- he makes Norm Peterson look like an amateur. Yeah, and and I think and I think he's just well, general... whiskey versus beer. <laughs> I was gonna say, it, like uh, like I would watch him put together furniture. I would like. There's a lot of drinking and driving by the cops in this show. Don't forget before they went to the to the uh, towers. Perk, Prez, and Carver. I didn't get... Carter or Carver? Carver. I I see. I always forget his name. I mix up the two... As as racist as it sounds, I always forget the two black cops' names on the task force. It's Carver and something with an S. Sidner. Sidner. And I I get all... I I have an easier time with the hood life guys than I do with the actual... um, Well, their names are more interesting and distinctive. I think Sidner kind of is kind of nowhere at these points he he's kind of just a random uh you have uh from in the first episode in narcotics division you have daniel's lieutenant uh greg's herc and carver are the three detectives under him and then you have who are all into the into the task force yeah oh they're they're his boys and right girl woman they're, and, they're they're his police, and then and then there's Poke and Mahone, who are the two fat white ones. Right, they come from property. The Humps, and, who haven't made a case in ten years. Lester Freeman, who's this enigma, who I love. I love Lester Freeman so much. Clark Peters is doing a great job. I Les, Lester Freeman is probably my favorite character in all five seasons of The Wire. I I love. He's I, up there. I love him so much. The fact that he's like a really great cop, and he, but he's like a coy, unorthodox great cop like mcnulty is more your straight ahead you know type a thinker whereas like at least what i've seen freeman is much more canny well freeman's been doing this longer freeman did his thing he got shit rolling he started things the division he was a homicide police yeah and he did something that got him exiled to the pawn shop unit for 12 years no, and 5 thir- months. 13. Years Excuse and me. 4 months. <laughs> 13 years and 4 months. A, to- <laughs> a total of 17 units of time. I 
I actually, what I actually, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This sounds a little weird, but I actually really identify with Lester Freeman because, like, on my okay. college's, on my college's newspaper, I'm the old guy. I'm like two years older than anyone else is there, and you know, and that's I, why you like came on the internet with us, where you're like a decade younger than the <laughs> rest know. of us. Well, with Freeman though, when he walks into that office, into Daniel's office, which he's got to get an overhead light or something, but. Uh, he walks into Daniel's office and sort of lays down the law. He's like, look, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it. And that's sort of like, you know, he's older, a little older, a little wiser maybe than Daniel's. But he's, you know, he's not being insubordinate, but because, you know, he's a lower rank, but he's saying, look, I know what I'm doing here. Oh, he's, let he's, done, he's done his time. He is, as Bunk said, natural police. Yeah. He did his thing. He stirred up shit and he got sent where he didn't want to go um well i think we should officially count bubbles as one of the other cops too at this point bubbles really is his own thing and uh i love i love him he's he's really one of the great characters of all of television andre royo is amazing he he shows up on he shows up on fringe in a fairly big guest role in i think season two or three and he's really good in it um, one of the things that I think sold me on, so I watched episodes one through three, and like I said, you hooked me with the shotgun, but then <laughs> episode four sucked me in because of all the comedy in episode four, and Bubbles was a big part of that. Like, I wrote down here his little quote of, ashamed to be your snitch. Yeah, I said, right now, right now I am hurting ashamed to be your snitch. I, I, I wrote that down. Well, I mean, because you start out with the couch and the stairwell, which is probably, I would say, the, 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 the desk in the doorway. Amy. Sorry, I'm still... <laughs> you know, ep- episode four may be my favorite. Ep- of of these five, episode four is definitely my favorite. And there are just a few things. That cold open... It's, you know what? It is that the, it, it, the, it popped the most out of everyone. Yeah. Uh, Bubble says, you know, there's a thin line between heaven and here. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great. He just says thin line between heaven and here, but that's a great, great line. And he, the haunted look in his face when he says it is really like. And that's one of the things I wanted to get to the wire is you're thrown into the middle of this world, and in a way, they sort of do the networky thing where they're yes, they built the team from the ground up, but at the same time, there's a lot of characters who have already lived this life for a long time, and. Sometimes I think where you have issues with other less well-made shows is you go, if this guy's like a 30-something cop, shouldn't he know all this by now? And that's why they always give you the rookie character who's like the audience's surrogate, basically. Um, But one of the things I liked here, especially with um, Bubbles and D'Angelo, like D'Angelo is a character who already exists. You know, his major plot so far has been dealing with something that happened before the show began, like eight months before the show began. Well, the thing is, there's really no one in this entire show who's a neophyte. Everyone's in their world. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I mean, our two main characters, D is a mid-level dealer associate of this crew. Yeah. McNulty is a longtime homicide detective who's more in tune with what's going on in the street than the hierarchy, the, the people, his bosses at the BPD. So do we embrace the show... Because it's really the trials and travails of middle management. <laughs> In some ways, that's the best explanation of of the wire. Right? It's it's really institutional the best, inertia. The, it's a, yeah, that's that's what it's, it's a show about organizational theory. And, and it's really to... the only piece of popular culture that's about 
the structure yeah. and politics well, of organizations. Well, I've, now I've, see that that's where that's when people start talking like that about the wire. That kind of thing is what turned me off watching it for but so it's long. So, but it's also so. But you've watched five episodes, and you can see how human it is. You well, can that's see. What I'm saying is, and that's the thing. It's 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 a tremendously funny show. It's a fun show. Pulled me in. Well, I, I think Mc- people's kneecaps get blown off. <laughs> kneecaps get blown off, and I was like, okay, so this isn't just some dry treatise on institutions. There's something visceral here. No, this then, is great it, television, and, and it happens to also four, be. They bring the humor, and it wasn't just kind of that. You know, Grissom gets a wisecrack off over the dead body, or. Um, you know, Briscoe says something funny when they arrest the perp kind of humor. I mean, it is good, good comedy. Well, I think, I think like that, I'll go back to that scene with Bunk and McNulty in the, in, um, in the, in that kitchen and the, where that just, the way they were working at each other, working and they're working at this fast pace. And you're like, why couldn't every set of detectives be Bunk and McNulty? And then you, you just sort of look at the landlord who's walking around with him, and he's us. He's the audience where he's just, like, looking at him, and he doesn't say a word. And he just looks at him, and in a, in a network procedural, he would be asking them, what are you doing now? And they would say, we're tracing the path of the bullet. And he just sort of... Yeah, he just falls on, he's like... No, yeah, it's like, montage. okay, yeah, sort of... And they would and, do the thing with the gun animated and CGI showing the bullet going through, then going into the girl's body, and, you know... They don't need to do that here. And the other thing I wanted that's, to get at, that, Amy, I just want to say that's a scene I've shown it at my house at more than one party where we pulled <laughs> that up on YouTube. It's a great, it's which an goes to show scene. how exciting my parties are. But uh, <laughs> I well get even more, Amy. Though we were talking about how human the show is. That scene where D'Angelo, I think he's actually sitting on the couch, um, but he gives that monologue about what how he killed that girl. That's a, and that's such a great monologue. It, Larry Giller just sells that. So well, he he describes that, and then to the letter, I I wrote that. I wrote McNulty that, and Bunk recreate, recreate that. Recreate it, yeah. And then the, 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 down to the three taps on the window. The the I love. I I thought that was a little on the nose. Like I actually yeah. think the show can be a little more impressionistic than it gets credit for. Like the show, I think there's a slight like like a two or 3% level of abstraction that we're just supposed to accept. It's not as completely gritty realistic as we want. I mean, it's plenty gritty realistic, but there's a, what it really is. is It's a show run by a newspaper man and it's trying to be as journalistic as possible and still trying to be a good television show. And, and well, even I think I could have Simon to me is a writer, you know, when you have a showrunner or a creator, a lot of times they're known as either, you know, they're a writer guy, they're a visual guy. He, they, he got some really good, I, I could see by four and five, like the cinematography got a little better than the first few episodes. The one thing I thought was corny in that fourth episode was the vertigo shot on D'Angelo went during that monologue. You know how they do it. They, they're zooming the camera out or in while dollying out and, the character stays in the same place, but the background oh, yeah. kind of. Yes. If if it had been ten percent less, like still vertigoed, but ten percent less, it's called the vertigo shot because I think it was invented for the movie Vertigo. Yes, it was. But um, it, it I wouldn't have noticed it, or I wouldn't have been that was a vertigo shot. And I watched for vertigo shots, but I wouldn't have I would I wouldn't have noticed it as much. But I that and oh, the other cinematography thing in the episode four that killed me is when Avon's in the gym shooting hoops and he goes in for that dunk at the end they had to do the quick cut to the 
to somebody on a stepladder dunking. <laughs> because I'm a sports movie guy, and they, you know, they had him going up, and his arc's coming down, and I'm like, come on, just let him shoot the layup. But no, they had to cut away and have him dunk. And I thought it would have been fine if he just put in a really nice layup. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I, I, I do have to say, I, the one thing about the show that I'm going to say, it's not the best film show in the world. Like, The Sopranos, a, a contemporary show, was such a more cinematic show. And I, I was going to... The Wire is, is very... It's a very pedestrian show. It's not it's I, not very well filmed. That may be partially by design, though. And to, I think to, I think to, to watch that, that is by design. Even after the advent of HD, they still shot in 4x3. Okay. They, it was a very Plus conscious choice hard. to do that. And I and for me, I think my thing with it is if it's it's really only when they try to go the extra mile and do that little touch that I notice it or really care when they're just filming it straight ahead. Hey, we're just going to film this. I'm kind of fine with it. And it's almost like you want either holy kind cinematic. of drama style or you want something that is a polished cinematic yeah. effect. Nail on the head. I, for me, it, it's when they do something, and they don't usually pull, they haven't been pulling off a lot of those moments. The vertigo shot was a little corny. Oh, in episode two, I wrote it down. I think I actually, I called it goofy. I, I wrote down the timestamp for it. There's a zoom in they do on Daniels, and it's sort of like a pan zoom. And it just is a push in at the 24 minute mark of the second episode. And it's really cheesy. It's so cheesy. They're in the, they're in the homicide office and Daniels is like in a doorway and, or something like that. And they do like a push and pan in on Daniels. And I was like, it reminded me of, you know, that YouTube video with the dramatic chipmunk. It sort of reminded me of that. It was like, bum, oh. bum, I, bum. I, I actually sighed and I was like, oh, come on. But like, those those are like two moments, and other than that, the show because the show could, if they had had somebody really visually gifted, I don't know what Michael Slovis was doing then. He's one of the DPs on uh, Breaking Bad. If if he had been around then, I would have well, loved he, to see what he's he not one. Of the, the he is the DP on Breaking Bad. Yeah, he well he's he's he, one of the directors on Breaking Bad, but he is the, he is the director of photography. Okay, he's. He, whenever Michael Slovis directs an episode, I get all jazzed up. And I wonder, like, I don't know what he was doing in 02. I could probably look it up. But he, uh, I, I would have, I wonder what this show could have been like if, if it had somebody who was really gifted visually. And maybe they get better in later seasons. I, I don't know. Does it, does it appreciably get better? You, that's not a spoiler to me. No, it, it's a very established template. And I think that the people who created the show, I think Clark Johnson, who directed the first two episodes, did a good job. And actually, I think it gets less ambitious after yeah. the first few episodes. There's fewer surveillance camera shots. Yeah. And it just goes more kind of documentary style without being all handheld and edgy in in 2002 lights in 2002 slovis was working on ed and uh the foreigner Ah, although although he he was a dp for 26 episodes of csi and uh you know he actually worked on fringe too the fringe has a lot of wire connections uh, between uh, i've noticed that if mike if if bodie shows up there as an alien well there's probably not going to be a next season of fringe but and I finally, you know what? I actually have to say, I was okay. really worried about getting all the names right. I've kind of gotten the names. I, okay, like, I, I just, before we go into that, which is something I would like to talk about. Yeah, I am just shocked and surprised. Michael Silvis was a cinematographer on Running Wild. 
with Bull yeah, Barnett. That, well, that's a as well as a couple good. episodes of Thirty Rock. Yeah, he he. I mean, he's a man of multi uh, of uh, many talents. He he's the one who invented shovel cam. So, gotta love um, the shovel cam. Can I? Can I? I I really want to talk about this one scene because I want to get back to the comedy in four because this is something I've been thinking about in about the last year or two since I've really been a heavy Twitter user is that's Twitter is what made me start to think about how you actually write comedy. Yes. Um, because, you know, you have these, you have this very, you know, little 140 character finite space and you've got to get it just right. But also it made me realize that, okay, there's this thing called an observation and then you tweak that and it becomes a joke and then you put a twist on it or something that makes it your own and that really just seals it and you know gets it retweeted gets it favorited whatever you yeah. know makes people laugh and for me the 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 scene that made me go okay i want to show this to people about how you write comedy well and i, I couldn't believe i was saying this about a show that's you know mostly a drama is the landsman scene where he's you know telling the mcnulty qualifications last night i'm at home i'm sitting up buck naked and i i got one hand wrapped around a cold domestic beer and the other wrapped around my magnificent flaccid four and one half inch wonder and i am <laughs> trying with all my might to remember what layla kaufman's nipples look like when her bathing top slipped off at the hillendale pool swim party <laughs> <laughs> layla kaufman yes sir it's uh summer of 72. I got this saucy wench in my gun sights, so to speak. And uh, I am dangerously close to engorged <laughs> when all of a fucking sudden, out of fucking nowhere, fucking detective fucking Jimmy McNulty pops into my head. McNulty. Obviously, I gotta open my eyes and admit to myself that my whole night is ruined. At which point, I got nothing to do but think about the problems of Jimmy McNulty. Because clearly, this guy and his fucking problems are standing between me and all worldly pleasure. Clearly. First of all, it's not Jimmy's fault. No? No. Jimmy is an addict, sir. What's he addicted to? Himself. <laughs> no, I, it's not funny, sir. As a matter of fact, it's a fucking tragedy is what it is. The guy... He has come to believe that he is always the smartest fuck in the room. And you know what? It's not his fault. Because, uh, let's face it, he's not going to Johns Hopkins or joining Mensa. He's taking a fucking job with the Balmer Police Department. His first two years in homicide, he's in Umansky's squad, partnered with Tony Lamartino. <laughs> Christ. It must have been months even. He was the smartest fuck in the fucking room. What's your point, Jay? My point is... He can't help it. It makes him an asshole. I know, but it's also what makes him good police. And it's not even the whole one hand around my cold domestic beer, another around my flaccid four and a half inch wonder. It's yeah. not even that, because that's still kind of an obvious punchline. It's when he says, I was dangerously close to engorged. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that's, that's not a... the obvious joke. He I was. Mean, yeah. Exactly. Engorged is just such the perfect word choice and tells you everything you know and need to know about this, you know, 
that old naked guy with his beer and his wang and <laughs> you know it's just that that line was so perfect one of the great things about that scene that i love aside from the 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 rhythm of it and the the language of it and the performance of it by uh delaney williams is the fact that Jay Landsman is a character on the wire, and he also is an actor on the wire. The actual Jay Landsman, was, the uh, who was a sergeant in the homicide unit when Ed Burns was a detective there, is a char- is an actor who is on the wire. He plays Lieutenant Mello from season three onward. Huh. I well, I was actually going to say so. It's very confusing that Jay Landsman is both a character on the show and an actor <laughs> who looks nothing like the actor playing the character Jay Landsman. <laughs> I actually have to say that the, the the Sergeant Landsman, right? I don't know his first name. Yes, the, Jay. The character, the character is to me. He, that performance is a little like hammy, like it, it's a little community theater. But I can see why, like it works because, like when he's talking to the boss, he's very obviously putting on a show. The guy, I don't know that guy's name. The guy who hates McNulty. That's uh, Major Rawls, played yeah. by the. Uh... The yeah. inimitable John Doman, I, who you would—I really do not want to be sitting across a desk from him chewing <laughs> me out. Well, I, uh, you know, to me at least, I, like that—it's a little stagey. Like a lot of times, there's some stuff that seems a little bit like it's a stage play, and maybe that's that's um, Simon's way of I, showing I think a us. Lot of, I think a lot of the show does. Oh, there are so many things here that are very stage. Like, and from I episode, would, like a few things I have in my notes here from episode one. Um, again, the, the cold open we talked about. Uh, the scene where uh, Kima, Herc, and, and uh, Carver are sitting in their office in CID talking about cracking heads and busting skulls and insert... Yeah. Insert clip here. We call the war on drugs war's end. That's that's so authorial. That's like you can see the hand of the the playwright there crafting those words. Well, same thing for the McNuggets and same thing for the chess. But exactly. When it's so well done, you kind of don't care. When I, in my notes for episode two, the detail, I actually wrote, there's a fair bit of speechifying and monologuing in these parts. Like at th- by that point... <laughs> The first episode is really, really slow. And I get why it's slow, and I like it. It's just, it's very slow. And to that point in the series, basically about halfway through the second episode, you're just like, okay, you know, they're, the setups for the monologues and the speeches aren't, like, egregious and contrived. And I think it's a good way of giving us the characters in the world. But I was, at that point, I was really just eager for us to start bouncing the characters off of each other. Because to that point in the series... We hadn't mixed our chocolate and peanut butter. And now, in episode four and five, we're mixing chocolate and peanut butter. We're getting the cops with the streets. And I, to me, that's where most of the magic well, has come. I think we do that in episode... Is that episode two where Bunk and Nolte come and sit with D'Angelo on the couch in the pit? Or is that episode three? I think... I think... I, I think... Uh, oh, no. That's, I think that is episode two. But that's at the end of the episode. Because I have the quote written down. Just you, me, my yes. partner, and Mr. Shit here. <laughs> yes, that is episode two, because that's the same episode where Kima is up on the rooftop with yeah. Herc and Carve taking photos of Bubs putting the hats on uh, all the players. And I gotta say, Kima, Kima, Kima's character, I mean, I, I like what they're doing. It's a strong female character, but man, she has some really bad mom jeans. <laughs> Those are... 
That's two thousand two. That's that's two thousand two. There's uh, I have some dated stuff between that the payphones and when uh, when D'Angelo goes on the date to the restaurant with with that his girl I don't know girl girlfriend. Her I believe hair, that's Donette. Her hair. I was like, did she pull that off like a Mariah Carey album or something? Like a like a like a nineteen ninety seven Mariah Carey concert because it was bad. But I actually well, I do. Even uh, just going back, even for two thousand two, the pagers and the payphones were very dated. The reason that that was, and they 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 talk about it, but the reason that that was in there is because this was about a case that uh, uh, Ed Burns worked in the nineties. Yeah, became developed into the show, and um, actually the 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 kingpin, the Avon Barksdale of this actual actual investigation. I think Marvin Williams is his name. I'm blanking on that right now. Marvin Williams is a is a basketball player. Uh, whatever it is, two Marvin the, Williams. <laughs> the the character here it was who was a a player, the the player, the Avon Barksdale of the West Side of Baltimore of the mid to late nineties. After he got out of jail, he was a character actor on The Wire. Really? <laughs> That's like Danny Trejo coming out and and. You know, working in all these movies now. I and actually, it didn't one of the actresses from The Wire, one we haven't met yet, uh, get busted for like running a heroin ring? Oh yes, um, uh, Felicia it's, Pearson, who Felicia plays, Pearson Snoop, plays Snoop, whose yeah. street name when she was a player before becoming an actor was Snoop. Yeah, whose being on the show was a result of her being a player on the street. Uh, after the show was on and she's been famous and published a book, et cetera, et cetera, has been, has been busted for something or other. Heroin. It was, I, I read it earlier this year and they, they had to call Simon to comment. The other thing I wanted to say, another really dated touch when in episode four, old cases, we keep going back to that episode, but when Kima and her partner are just, I don't know her partner's name. When they're just lounging in their apartment, that was some really quasi like softcore porn music that was going. Well, th- was... this this is one of the things that now feels so dated to me. The that, idea that, that Kima that and and in Maryland it's still the case, yeah. but the the idea that Kima could not be married because she's a lesbian, like that's one of the things where we've had progress over the last does, ten years. Does that become a conflict in the show or something? But. There is, I'll say, there is conflict between Kima and her partner's name, who's I can't remember at this point, Mrs. Kima. I, I think um, they mentioned it like <laughs> twice. Hey, Kima could be the Mrs. Whoever. Let, let. Oh no! Come on, it's Mrs. Kima. <laughs> <laughs> now K- Kima wears the pants in that relationship. Kima wears the, the pants everywhere. Yeah, she the- wears the mom jeans there. Kima but, wears the pants everywhere. I love Kima. She's fantastic. You know, everybody, yeah. uh, you know, there was all this recommendation of, oh, watch the, watch it with subtitles, watch it with subtitles. And the only person on the whole show that I have a hard time understanding is Kima. Really? And I don't know if it's something about her accent or the pitch of her voice. Um, because as much as I love Dennis Haysbert, is that how you say his name? I don't know. Who? The, the guy who was uh, Pres- President Palmer on 24, and now he does the Allstate oh, commercials. Yeah. I've I've been watching my I've been working my way through the unit. Oh. And, um, wow, that sounds kind of dirty. <laughs> um, he's also in Major League. I was he's, pa- say, he's, he's Pedro Serrano. That, that, he's Pedro Serrano in Major League. That gawky guy from uh, Texas, the pitcher, the unit, right? Yeah, um, Randy anyway, Johnson. 
Um, but I can't understand him because his voice is so deep. It's so there's something sonorous. about the sound mix sometimes that I have a hard time understanding him. So I don't know if it's like her pitch or her accent or something, but Keem is the one that I have the hardest, that I don't understand sometimes. I think I mostly get people's voices. I think the slang isn't as hard to me as I think people said it would. Like, you can get well, what is, is there anything that you guys have found that you haven't, you've had issues with or didn't get or have had to go back and uh, Google? There, there have been a few things that have been a little vague that I'm like, I've had to rewatch a scene because I'm like, well, what are they like? What are they just if watching it like twice allows me to figure out I like I'll know what they're talking about. Like the first time I watch it, I figure out what they're talking about. And then I the second time I go back and see what they actually said. I just let it all wash over me in some kind of like Juno fetch clueless. Yeah. Slang <laughs> absorption shield. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't worry me. I'm like. I get the gist. It's okay. Well, um, do you guys find that you do you find that you're talking like characters from The Wire now? I, I <laughs> I've heard of that phenomenon. I I don't think I'm talking like it. I I really love some of the quotes. Oh, got to this, I've already used it got will to happen. this America. I've used got to this America man like eight times. And I I all my friends are real. I have like two. I have two half black friends, so I only have one black friend. So. <laughs> And, and well, do you and Stephen Colbert get together and talk about your black friends? (laughs) Going back to the look and feel of the show, I mentioned Star Wars earlier, and that's the best comparison I can give is that the the world feels weathered. And one of the reasons why Star Wars was so revolutionary for science fiction is because before that, most science fiction was all Star Trek and it was all clean lines and flat colors, whereas Star Wars looked ugly. Star Wars looked like shit. And it was supposed to. The world, other than the M- scenes on the Death Star, basically, you know, it, Tatooine. It, yeah, was, it was a world Tatooine that was lived gross. in. And that's how I feel about The Wire. And, you know. I, and, I, yeah, I think that's a good good analogy. The great thing about Star Wars is that it felt like there was this history here. Like that Ben you know, Kenobi did fight against the Empire and he lost. And, and he was exiled it. to this <laughs> shithole in the middle of He's nowhere. He's Lester Freeman. He's Lester Freeman. And, if, and, and if it's the same thing to- with Lester Freeman. He he fought the system in some way, and he was exiled to the pawn shop unit yeah. for 12 and years make, and five and months. And if we're going to make more Or 13 years and four to- months, however long it was. <laughs> All I'm gonna- thinking is, if I, I should have done some sort of over-under on how long into a conversation with would two take men to mention Star Wars. in this age group and demographic it was going to take before we hit Star Wars. <laughs> well, and... Well, well, hey, I'll hit your demographic, Amy. I'll, I'm going to make another ridiculous comparison. The Wire, watching Parenthood, watching three seasons of Parenthood has prepared me for The Wire in that I understand all, all the character names. Character. It taught me to watch for character names and watch for character interactions. Like, when these two characters are together, what is that dynamic? Well, at some when, point, when I get to set up the Vampire Diaries, I have been biting my tongue here about oh, all of the ways in which The Wire is like the Vampire Diaries. You're, you're, you're jumping the gun, because you were going to unveil that at the end of this episode. Well, I, I will. Ooh. <laughs> Just saying, I've been biting the tongue. Ooh, it's a... It's a it's, foreshadowing but that um and then and then i you know i'm not gonna lie when i was going into the wire i really thought i was gonna fall victim to the cross race effect not because i think i'm racist but because i grew up in like because i well i grew up in new hampshire which is 99 percent white that's and it i was just that was more 99 point like seven my my town was my town was below the state average we were only 99.4 
Um, but my, um, I, I was really worried. I'm like, am I going to be able to tell these characters apart? But, you know, they do such a good job of with the characterization that even the minor characters are so visually distinctive. Well, they, um, they have such great character actors on the show who play the, the secondary <clears throat> roles. They're so distinctive in the way they look. There is one issue, though. There is, there's one issue that I got totally confused on because I watched Lights Out, um, which started, which, co- which the, had an actor on it uh, with the name Pablo Schreiber. And he shows up in later seasons of The Wire. And I knew he had been on The Wire. I didn't know in what way he was on The Wire. So when the FBI guy shows up, the guy that uh, helps out McNulty, gives him the good mics that a cop later puts on his penis. Um, and and then um, he's the one who he meet, He's the one who tells McNulty that Daniels is dirty or that he thinks Daniels is dirty. I thought that guy was Pablo Shriver, and it looks like him, but it's not. It's a different guy named Doug O'Lear or O'Lear or something. Yeah, both both who look for some reason like Seth Meyers to me. Yeah, they they look like they actually, look like actually butch, more more so of uh, the the FBI agent whose name I'm blanking on right now. Uh, I FBI guy is what I call him. Who who calls McNulty brother? I, I also a kind he, of a an American Desmond from Lost. I I, I also liked how. McNulty had to teach him how to cruiser spoon, <laughs> and he's like, "You've never been out on on the, on the beats, have you before?" Yes, you know. On and and I and I liked that. And but I so I got a little confused with that. But other than that, I, it took me a while to learn Pooh's name. I always said he's the third Poot. baby gangster. Poot, Poot. I thought it was Pooh. It's Poot. Okay, Poot. It took me a while to learn Poot's name. Um, like just now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and, so the the three the three kids who work under D'Angelo in the pit. Are Bodie They're phenomenal? Bodie Wallace, Poot, and, and Wallace. Well, in order of how important they are so far, they've been Bodie, Wallace, and Poot. Poot is just sort of a hanger on. In alphabetical order, they're Bodie, Poot, and Wallace. Poot and Wallace. <laughs> they sound like the worst law firm ever. <laughs> yeah, um, it's no Ben Jarvis Green Ellis, <laughs> who I would retain to go to the Supreme Court with. I'm hesitant to admit this because I don't want to seem dumber than Presbalewski. I don't get yes. the code. Oh, oh, the code is easy. It's it just it jumps over the five. So but if you're what does in the that top, mean? Jumps over the five. If you're in the if you're in the top left corner, okay. if you're a one, you go, jump to the go diamond. Back, go back to the nineties. Remember, I'm I'm going to pick up my landline phone well, here. Well, and I can do the same thing. So look at the dial. So let's let's dial. Dial. My uh, let's Big. dial a a version of my phone number, um, in a different area code. So let's four, dial. Oh, that's Baltimore. Let's let's go with like a three four seven area code, which means you would dial seven six one. Because it's what's directly across the five, like jumping the five. But what happens if you need to use a five? You, that's zero. zero. That's five they, and zero. They, they specifically, Presbalewski specifically says. Oh, and, and or McNulty points out. I actually want to say I thought that was a really nice payoff for Presbalewski because I I had wondered how much they were going to do with the cops that we weren't supposed to like, and I was wondering how much we already kind of don't like. Like Mahone got hurt, or whichever one. I think Mahone is the one who got hurt by Bodie. Um, and yes, Mahone is hurt. was whooped on by Bodie, and he gets he gets his retirement. He gets yeah. out at uh, sixty six and two thirds. Yep. I wrote down, how much do you hate your job that a spinal injury seems like a blessing? <laughs> I love that I love that scene, though, where... You gotta do um, it, man. <laughs> Bodhi, Bodhi whoops on Mahone, and then Kima. you see Kima, who is, like, 
up until this point, she is the like cop of cops. She is the one who's like really in. Like, she has all the integrity, and she runs over there. Well, at that and point, like, okay, oh, she's going to break this up. No, she starts whooping on no, Brody's no, ass. Because at that point, they know. Like, listen, you have to. You can't let them get away with that. You don't want to let anyone be seen messing with the cops. Because then it becomes like, well, it's going to escalate from there. So they beat the crap out of them. Well, there's also a part yeah, of but me that kind of wondered, like, because I can't help it. I, you know, I often look at things from a gender lens of. You know, does Kima get in there and she's going to hit twice as much, twice as hard to prove I, she can't? And I do. And I, I think, think that's part that. of the case. We've seen that before, where because she talks when she had when she comes out to McNulty, or when when McNulty sort of like it's not. I don't know. Yet she, another great drunk moment of the Jimmy McNulty over. Yeah, where yeah, he I, just shows up at Kima's door. Well, he, he she was out to him before that. Yeah, but he's he you know it worked with Rhonda Perlman. Yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe he'll try it with Kima. <laughs> that was that's one. I, I think I wrote down the quote. You know, that's what you got. Who's at the door? One confused looking white boy, <laughs> <laughs> which can sum up most of my life. Yeah, and there's one. Th- if there's one thing that Dominic West does great, it's not the Baltimore accent. It's not sounding authentically American in any way. But he plays drunk as well as anyone on television. But he's sort of like a. He's sort of like a. Re- he's not like an out of control drunk. He's just sort of like the drifting, smirking, bemused drunk. Now he is perfectly believable in that capacity. Is, I he, like, that's summer, what he gets so right. Like McNulty is. And Dominic yeah, West and is so in that there. is my exposure and experience to Dominic West, where he's a decade older, and his character on the hour is. I wrote it down as a proto William Hurt in broadcast news. <laughs> I thought he was supposed to be like Cary Grant. Well, if you watch, the, if you've seen broadcast news, and then you watch the hour, it's hard not to make some comparisons. But on the hour, his now, character he is, is perfectly believable you know, in really that capacity. He, like, that's what he really, gets so right. Um, like McNulty, powerful in his own way. Is but one thing he is on there as well as on, drunk as he is as McNulty. Excuse me, while I have some more whiskey just right now. One charming motherfucker. And in eight thirty a.m. meeting tomorrow. That, <laughs> I mean, it's in, it's kind of used in sort of a sinister way on the hour in some ways it's not a desirable trait there but definitely the guy who you would not unless you're kima if he shows up drunk at your door you're yeah. not disappointed and i think that's one thing the episode does, show does really well is episode to episode motifs stuff that you know like um the one the episode where d'angelo goes in and stringer gives him his bonus and then later he, you know, I, I thought that was really good. That was an episode with, with people having to ask for what they wanted and stuff and not always getting it. And because I believe that's also the episode where Daniels is asking for. I don't remember which episode that was, but that was the episode, I think, where Daniels was. He's done it a few times, but begging for be- more, better police. And so I, I thought that was a good motif. And we see a lot of character parallels and stuff. So, I, you know. Well, yeah, that that is one of the things that we do see in pretty much all these episodes, that there is a very strong parallel between what's going on on the street and what's going on in the police. Yeah. I think I think that, um, at least with me, it was always, like, something will happen in one episode, and then, like, the next episode, they're still talking about it, but it's like, McNulty will be talking about, oh, it was with the bus by bus, which I figured out quickly what a lot of this, the by bus is when you get somebody selling drugs and, you know. so, so is there any kind of terminology or thing or 
like action that goes on in these episodes that you guys have been confused well, I by. I already admitted the code. And I watched the red hat thing twice and then had to go online to get somebody to tell me what the hell was going on with the red hats. They they explain it once and it's it's really quick, but basically he's putting the red hat on anyone who's in Barksdale's crew. Yeah, the and, the red hat means this is someone who's in the game, who's important, who you want to get in this investigation. See, I was because... overcomplicating it because I thought that it was um like there was something being passed in the hat in addition to the pictures being taken, or that he was giving a different hat to different like I, I overcomplicated it, and and that's really what happened. Well, he was he was giving different hat to different people. He was giving the red hat to the players who matter. He was giving the other hats to other people who are in the game. Okay. And yeah. and Kima and Hurricane Carver up on the, the rooftops taking... And, and that was the scene that I loved where, going back and watching this again, where Kima is up on the rooftops with Hurricane Carver. They go up there and Kima is sneaking around. She's doing her thing. She's being police. <laughs> Carver is like, he's, he's in the, he, he has no idea what's going on, but he's, he's going with it. And Herc is up there, like, oh, shit, I stepped on a, a fucking <laughs> vial. I got to get a tetanus shot. Shh, motherfucker. And then Kima, like, sees uh, McNulty and Bunk come in. She's like, okay, I got to go down and figure this out. And gives the camera to Carver. That, she knows that, that Carver is the, like, he's not as much of an idiot as his partner. And he, and, uh, he figures it out. He's like, okay, pictures, hats, red, okay. Click, click, click. But, but we also see, but we also see that Herc has his own gifts. In that, yeah, he's kind of brash and kind of dumb, but he's the one who got Bodie's grandmother to mm. open up, and 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 Carver couldn't do that or didn't do that. Well, yes, I I have that in my notes. Uh, Thirty-one minutes into episode four, Herc has a moment with Bodie's grandma, <laughs> and um, and I also think. That's something they do very well, basically in the fourth episode on. And Presbolewski with the code, Freeman finding out Freeman's story is we spent basically two or three episodes, two episodes basically, thinking these guys were all stooges. And then they're slowly unraveling that because these are all the dregs nobody wanted, but they have their gifts. And maybe it's because the modern police department isn't thinking properly and isn't finding ways to use the good people they have. Well, that's a great and, thing about, about this. Like you see episode four, like you realize Freeman, he is one badass motherfucker of a cop. He, and furniture. he's like, he, he's, he's sitting there making furniture, earning more, more money, money than anyone than, else in the detail. And by the way, a Baltimore cop's selling the furniture. Making, a Baltimore cop's got to be making fifty plus. Maybe not then. Maybe then it's like forty. Yeah, but but, but he's sitting in the pawn shop money. unit. He's not doing a lot. He's probably making a hundred grand in furniture every year. Sending it on <laughs> well, eBay. I loved on on IMDb one of the and, bits of trivia for that episode was the book on Lester Freeman's desk during the thirteen years and four months conversation with McNulty is Victorian and Edwardian fashion: a photographic survey by Allison Gernsheim, nineteen sixty three, Dover Publications. I love that somebody went and like did a zoom and then did a proper citation. I loved how McNulty was really happy that Presbolewski did something. Not like for Presbolewski's sake, but just in general. <laughs> he kissed yeah. him on the lips. Okay, maybe McNulty was drunk at that point. Probably. Wait, I'm sorry. 
this was an episode of The Wire. McDulty was drunk at that point. Speaking of kissing on the lips, the the Omar thing, I knew all about Omar being a badass, like Robin Hood. I actually wrote down, I would watch a Omar spinoff called Robin the Hood. Uh, that's like, that's hacky. That's hacky. I, the, the thing about him being gay, I was really surprised. I mean, you know, it's not TV, it's HBO, whatever. But I was impressed. I mean, because again, like you were talking about earlier with um, the strides that have been made towards marriage equality in the last decade, that, you know, 10 years ago to show two men kissing like that, and it's not a rating stunt, it's not um, some sort of trying to be daring and provocative. It's like, no, this is just what's happening. And and for me, I the thing I liked and I thought was hilarious, I actually laughed when it happened, is you get those discussions between like Kima and McNulty. They're like, yeah, Stringer runs a tight operation, man. They're they're good. They're, you know, good. And then like five minutes later, Omar's like, these guys are punks. Like Omar's like, these guys don't know what they're doing. Talking about Barksdale's crew. I really like that. I really like that. Basically, the cops are the people who are the furthest behind everyone. Even and... even even Bodie though, when Bo when they're when when he he pushes Herc or when he pushes uh, uh, Carter Carver to the edge in that interrogation, and you know he starts beating on him, and Bodie like the end of that scene is Bodie just yelling, "You're supposed to be the good cop, dumbass," or something like that. Like to me, that was great. The the biggest question mark I've had is. Bodie just being able to walk out of the home. That to me, maybe that's Simon being like, nobody cares about these kids. Nobody pays attention. I mean, you, you can't, you think there's not yeah, I think that's, that's the point of it. I think yeah. that that's so much the point of it. Uh, that, that juvenile detention is. Well, okay. See, I have actually been to a juvenile detention center. Okay. You win. From was, personal experience. No. <laughs> okay. When you're a new faculty member at Georgia, a trip around the state. <laughs> And one of the places you visit is a women's juvenile detention center in Macon, Georgia. And <laughs> they have a fence. There was way more security than what they were showing in that facility on the wire. That was a little bit iffy, but and at, at the end of that, it, he goes, he goes, you know, he, he, he says, he keeps, they'll get a little friendly, but then he says something and pushes it. You know, like he because I think he feels he's not supposed to be friends with cops or friendly to cops. And then finally, the last thing he says is he, he says one last thing and Herc gets right in his face. And he says, but that sandwich was good. <laughs> and and there there is like a kind of a focus on food between Poots being like Poot being like, oh, you know, you should have ordered something for me. And and you know, all the sandwiches and brisket and ribs and, you know. Going back to my disgusting subway notes, let's see. How do you feel so far? We got that. Are you guys in for the ride? You hooked me with the visceral in in episode three and then the humor in four. Because I think what I was most afraid of with watching The Wire was that it was going to be broccoli. It was going to be a joyless slog. It was going to be like my Netflix queue is full of what I call broccoli movies. (laughs) And then I keep moving, you know, whatever the latest crappy rom-com is up to the top. Oh, ahead of the broccoli movies, which was a sketch on Portlandia this week. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I haven't gotten to it yet. So uh, I was really afraid that that was what The Wire was going to be, was just. And I I think that's this relentless symbolism and posturing and if allegory had, if, and blah. And, if and I think at these, this point, that's the, that's the biggest thing. Like, 
the more the more we go on this point, the more we realize like, the wire is very serious. It's like heavy culture. And you don't realize that it is one of the funniest shows of the, the decade. But, it's like for a it, drama, for a serious drama, it is hilarious. Even you know, even if it's just little beats like when Mahone, when they first walk into that office and it's awful and they all realize that they're the black sheeps, that's when they all realize that, you know, they're looking around at each other, thinking each other's shit. Then they walk into that office and they go, oh, we're all shit together. And when that when that phone rings and Mahone just picks it up and drops it. Santangelo picks it up Santangelo and drops it. Santangelo picks it up and drops it and just says, like, it was for McNulty. Like, <laughs> I, I, I laughed out loud at that. It was very funny. Yeah, so, you know, you bring in a shotgun and a floppy dick joke and I'm hooked. And there we, <laughs> there we go. So is there is there anything else we need to say to put a pin in this other than that? I'm gonna keep watching. I'm gonna probably, I I don't know if I'm gonna watch along with a list of things. I I really need to keep watching this show, and I I may not be able to take it at such a slow pace uh, as they are. Oh, I I will definitely say as you get towards the end of this season. Um, fortunately, these two episodes are on the same list together. Let me uh, find my. I have the DVDs eight. here in uh, close proximity, so I can tell you this. When you get to uh, episode 10 and 11, you will need to watch them back to back. 10 and Do 11. Not, 10 and 11. Don't uh, sit this, down until you have two hours. Motherfucker. That's not the name of the episode. What? Fucking A. Did you not record the last like 20 minutes? I, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to keep us in the spirit here. <laughs> oh, okay. You're in You're the doing spirit. the investigation. <laughs> That's the problem. Fuck. <laughs> let, let Amy be the host now, Andrew. You're demoted. You're demoted. Amy's the we host now. We have taken now. away your keys. All right. <laughs> so thanks again to Dan and Amy for joining me on this very special episode of the podcast. You can find us online at buzzrantrave.com, where you can get show notes with links to various discussions, information, and other useful facts about The Wire. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If not now, then soon. And if you have any comments, questions, or want to uh, be on a future episode, which you get to do if you've listened all the way through this one, contact me at andrew at andrewraff.com or on Twitter at andrewraff. The payoff of our Super Bowl bet, which will occur after the Giants defeat the Patriots. And so until next time... Happy now, you bitch. So teach you to give a fuck when it ain't your turn to give a fuck.